Praise God for the privilege to be together again as God's people to gather uh, together and sing songs like that and meditate on those great truths of the gospel. We as Christians are not afraid of death, though we can be tempted to be uh, because we know that Christ has defeated death. He has taken away our sins and he has taken away that fear of death. It's interesting when you read Hebrews how the writer talks about the fear of death being a bondage, being a slavery over us, and that the gospel, one of the great effects of the gospel is that it frees us, it liberates us from the fear of death. And the history of Christian martyrdom is a great testimony to the reality of that, to the power of that. Today, as most of you know, is Palm Sunday, the week before Resurrection Sunday or Easter. This is the day of our Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You have, uh, I imagine, read that in the Gospels, Christ coming in humbly on a donkey into Jerusalem, the great king, the king who would five days later reign from the tree, as the church fathers would say. He reigned as king in the most unkingly, from the world's eyes, most unkingly moment. He is reigning as he is conquering sin. The king who would seven days later rise victoriously from the dead. So I just want to say to us this morning as we prepare for Easter, as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday, that only through Christ are sin and death defeated. We, we live this life and we think about our enemies. We think about uh, the things that come against us in various ways. But the truth is, the biblical worldview has at the core this great truth that our greatest enemy is sin and death. And we could throw in with that the enemy, Satan. Sin and death stand over us. And we talked about that a lot in Romans, particularly Romans chapters 5 and 6. That sin and death enslave the world. And it is only through Christ that the power of sin and death and the guilt of sin and the consequence of death are Removed, And so I pray this week that uh, your thoughts will go often to what Christ has purchased for you as a Christian. And if you're not a believer, you're here this Sunday, I, I pray that you will think freshly about the truths of the gospel, that you will give fresh attention to the claims of the Christian message. What is it that Christianity is all about? Maybe you've got all sorts of ideas about it, but the core of Christianity is what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is that Christ came, he died for sins, he was buried, and he rose again. He was seen by many witnesses, he has ascended into heaven, and one day he will come back for his people. He will come back for all of us this morning who are singing these songs, who are praising him as our king. So uh, this is Palm Sunday, but this week we will stay with our series in Exodus, and next week we will go to the Gospels to consider Christ's death and resurrection. So uh, next week we'll, we'll move from our series in Exodus, and then we'll come back to that after next Sunday. I also want to just briefly announce uh, that we have our Good Friday service this Friday, and that will be from 5.30 to 6.30. And we'll, we'll simply be gathering for an hour to meditate on the truths of Christ's crucifixion. 
What is it that Christ did 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross for our sins? And what did that accomplish for us? So we're going to praise him for that. We're going to read lots of scripture. And we'll have a short message that evening. And then, of course, we will gather on Sunday for Easter. So today we're in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. You can go ahead and go there in your Bibles with me if you would. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Last week, we looked at Moses' childhood, summed up in those first 10 verses of chapter 2. We don't get a lot of details about Moses' childhood. Uh, It's similar to Christ. When you come to the Gospels, you get some information about Christ's birth. And then you get this incident uh, that we find told by the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, this, this incident where Jesus is 12 years old at the temple, and then you fast forward to his public ministry. And we see a similar sort of thing here with Moses, recognizing, of course, Moses as being one of the great types of Christ. But we get just summed up his entire childhood, and really his early adulthood even, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The Israelites have multiplied in Egypt, The Egyptian rulers are afraid of what might happen. Uh, They don't know what this mass of people could do in the event that an enemy attacks Egypt. What will happen? What will this mass of people do? Will they they align themselves with this uh, foreign invader? Will they rise up and take possession of the land? Or maybe it's translated there, leave the land. Either way, not good from the perspective of the Egyptian rulers. So they decide to enslave the Hebrews. And there's a, 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 a period of, of sort of lighter enslavement. And we get this sense of, of this getting worse and worse and worse. The burdens getting heavier and heavier. And the oppression becoming greater and greater. Until we see this awful decision to put to death all of the Hebrew baby boys. A policy, a national policy of infanticide. And in the middle of this horrific ordeal, one baby boy in particular is born to two faithful Hebrews, two God-loving, God-believing Levite parents who hide him from the authorities for three months. And you can imagine how difficult that would have been. They're hiding this little infant trying to keep him away from the watching eyes. Now, who knows at this point what, the, what it looks like on the ground? Who might be uh, informants among the Hebrews? And whether or not there are patrols going through the villages looking for these baby boys, we don't have any information as to how the Egyptians enforce this edict to put to death all of the baby boys. But we can only imagine how difficult it would have been for them to hide him away for three months. But there comes a point when it just becomes impossible. They can no longer hide him. It is as though one more day of hiding him and they will be caught and he will be thrown immediately into the Nile. And so when they can hide him no longer, he is placed on the river along the bank among some reeds in a little basket, or as we talked about last week, a little mini ark. The same word used for Noah's ark. 
By God's providence, he is found and adopted by one of Pharaoh's daughters. It's this amazing moment of God intervening and stepping in, of God showing up and showing his ability to govern space and time, his ability to govern the hearts and the thoughts and the intentions and occurrences of human life. And so God has it that Pharaoh's daughter finds him and adopts him. He is nursed by his own Levite mother with wages paid to her until he is brought into the royal courts of Egypt. This is the famous Moses. Uh, Probably one of the most famous names in history. If you were to go around all over the world and ask people uh, to name the the most famous people in human history, Moses would probably be on that list. So that was last week, the boy Moses. But today we come to the man Moses, beginning with the opening words of verse 11. I read these to you last week just to show you the transition. So the beginning of verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up. So we've transitioned very quickly, very abruptly from childhood and the circumstances of his birth and the circumstances of his being nursed and being adopted and being named. And now we fast forwarded to one day when he has grown up. As we go through these stories in the early part of Exodus, we recognize, obviously on the surface, that we are reading about Moses. So based on the title last week and the title this week, you could say, well, what are those sermons about? Well, they are about Moses, the boy Moses and the man Moses. And that is, in fact, what we are reading about as we come to God's word. That's what these texts are about. And yet, what we are really doing is seeing the work of our great God. These stories and the stories that will follow in the book of Exodus Put before us God's providence and his rescue. Those are the big ideas as we go through the book of Exodus. God's providence and his rescue. God has brought the Israelites into Egypt. God is preserving and multiplying them. God has brought them into a trial. And God is raising up a deliverer to bring his people out of bondage and into the land of promise. So as we read about the circumstances of Moses' life, we are reading about the hand of God in preparing and raising up a deliverer for his people. We are seeing the heart of God and the preparatory work of God in doing what he will do to save the Hebrews. God is actively keeping his promises. So you can't read any of these narratives, you can't read any of these chapters, any of these stories, and not immediately think in your mind, God is fulfilling, he's actively fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so even in these stories, we see the faithfulness of God to his promises. The work of God To save his people is the great theme of Exodus. And he is the promise-keeping God. So we're approaching Easter. We're approaching Resurrection Sunday. And as we do so, we consider that Moses himself, that's where we're at right now in Exodus, Moses himself, the Passover lamb, 
the exodus out of slavery, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle of God's presence, all of these moving parts of Exodus that we're going to come to as we go through this very significant, important book within the Bible, all of these moving parts are pointing to something greater. They are pointing to someone greater. Exodus is pointing to the Deliverer, the Lamb of God, the one who frees us from slavery, the righteousness of God in human flesh, the Emmanuel, God with us. And so we cannot read these stories and just think, this is great. This is, a, this is great background. This is great biblical history. Uh, thank you for giving me that, that historical lesson. We can't read these stories, though they must in some way be entitled the boy Moses, the man Moses, because that's what the text is about. We can't read these stories without recognizing that all of this is leaning into Christ. All of this is pointing to the Christ who fulfills all of the types, the promises we find in this great book. All of Exodus points to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, those who sit here in this building this morning. So as we think about Moses and the God who protected him, the God who raised him up, let our minds quickly go to Christ. Let us fixate on Jesus, the true deliverer, the one who was sent by the Father, protected at his birth, and who was sent to take away our sins. I pray for all of us, our families this week, as we are preparing our hearts for Easter, as we're preparing our hearts for Good Friday, that we will instruct our children. Remember, when the Hebrews come out of Egypt, what is one of the major things that God tells them? He tells them, tell your children. When your children ask, Daddy, what are we doing? Mommy, what are we doing? Tell them of God's mighty deeds. Tell them how God came through Egypt and he struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he passed over his people. Tell your children that God is the great rescuer and deliverer. And so I plead with you this week, tell your children that God in Christ has made the way for us to be redeemed and to be with God forever. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus 2, verses 11 to 22. So I won't reread the portion about his childhood, but you can see those, that's verses 1 to 10. So Exodus 2, 11 to 22, this is the word of God. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, or brawling And he said to the man in the wrong, literally the wicked man, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who 
made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, Who is it that you, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to our Father. Let's ask for his blessing over this time in his word. Let's pray that this won't be, for any of us, just another time at church. Right? Just another time sitting, listening, another time to kind of comfortably sit back and just just go somewhere else in your mind. But that this will be a time to camp out and fixate and to draw from and grow from our food for today, for this week, from God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this passage. Uh, Lord, this little bit of your word is special and it is for our edification, it, it is part of the, the equipment that we need in order to live this life well, in order to bear fruit, in order to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. We pray that our leaves would not wither because we delight in your word and we meditate on it day and night. We thank you that you have given it to us. And Father, we pray now that as we are instructed in it, that our faith would grow, that the distractions of this life with all of its pleasures and treasures would become small, and that your glory, your power, your deliverance, your rescue, your providence, your love, would become so clear to us as we meditate on your word together. Father, be with us, convict us of sin, guide us in the way of righteousness. Help us to look to Christ and to know that we have been shown the greatest mercy we could ever fathom and that in Christ we are clean before your face, that that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we pray that our hearts would take great joy this morning in this truth, that Jesus vicariously stepped in our place as the substitute for our sins, and he died a sinner's death under your wrath to save us from our sins, to save us from your judgment, to save us from hell. Father, we pray that we would just rejoice, as Paul says again and again in Philippians, that we would rejoice because of what we have, 
and what awaits us. Lord, that faith would fill our hearts. Feed us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we move from the boy Moses to the man Moses, our passage gives us two ideas. And you'll see those up on the screen here. Two big ideas that guide this period. The next time we see Moses, he's going to be confronted by the Lord in the burning bush that is not consumed. And so um, this really is, and and that'll be uh, at the age of 80 80 years old, that's when he goes into Egypt. So, so we're getting all, we're getting just the, these 22 verses are capturing all of these years of Moses' life. And so what is it that the Holy Spirit wants us to focus in on as we come to a passage like this? And we have two things here. First, identifying with his people, verses 11 to 14, and then fleeing for his life, verses 15 to 22. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So go with me again to verses 11 to 14 as we carefully put those in view. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating or striking or assaulting a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. And hid him in the sand. The only place to hide someone in Egypt. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling or brawling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion or friend? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And we'll stop there for now. These verses give us two consecutive scenes. Two days, two interconnected events, back to back. So we're not giving, given any information about Moses' adulthood until we come to this point. We are not told how many years have passed since verse 10. We don't know how long, as I said last week, how long Moses' biological mother has nursed him and kept him before giving him over to the princess. We don't know how much time has passed. But Acts chapter 7 verse 23 informs us that Moses is now 40 years old. So he is the age that Isaac was when he got his wife, Rebecca. He is 40 years old, a, a fully grown man. Not that that's when you're fully grown at 40, although in this culture, I suppose that happens later, unfortunately. Uh, but he is 40 years old. And at this point in his life, he does something new. Something that it appears he has not done before. He gives careful attention to the enslavement of his fellow Hebrews. And once again, chapter 7, verse 23, adds a little bit of color. It says this, It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. It just came into his heart. I wonder who put that there. It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Israel. We just don't know what level of exposure Moses has had up to this point. 
to the mistreatment of the Hebrews. You know, it's a little strange when you come to it because you think, well, I mean, it's right under his nose. He's seeing it all of the time. But we just don't know to what extent Moses has been exposed to the suffering of the Hebrews. It could be that he has basically been just around Royalty, he's been kind of removed from that situation. Maybe he was three or four when he went from his mother, his biological mother, Jochebed. He went from her to the princess. We just don't know. But whatever he has seen up to this point, this moment of observation for him takes it to a new level. And for Moses, this is a crucial moment in establishing his identity. That's really what's going on here. Who is Moses? And that's the question we have to ask as we come out of verses 1 to 10. There's a little bit of an identity crisis going on here. A little bit of schizophrenia. Who is Moses? He's born to a Hebrew woman and hidden by her. He's later nursed by her, but he is adopted by not just an Egyptian woman. He's adopted by the daughter of the ruling Pharaoh, the one who has put this evil policy in place, the most powerful person in the world at the time. And he's given a name that sounds like the Hebrew, but is ultimately Egyptian. And you see this with names like Thutmose and Amhos and Moshe, Moses. So who is Moses? Is he an Egyptian or a Hebrew? Born a Hebrew, raised as an Egyptian. Hebrew blood, but Egyptian royalty. He has been living in the palaces of kings, not carrying the burdens of slaves. So who is he? Or we could ask the question this way. Who does he want to be? Who does Moses want to be? Who does he wish to be? Who does Moses choose to be? Verses 11 to 14 are the answer to that question. That's what this set of verses is all about. As I said before we, as I said before, a little while ago, we get these two scenes here in these verses. First, Moses killing an Egyptian, and second, Moses breaking up a fight between Hebrews. We get these two scenes in these verses, but both of these scenes go together to make clear Who Moses is identifying with? Who is Moses? How does he see himself? The common thread between these stories is Moses' relationship to the Hebrews. So notice what's repeated in verse 11. Look back at verse 11 with me. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. His people. Literally in Hebrew, his brothers And looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Once again, what does the author write here? What is Moses, who's the author? What does he write again here? One of his people. Once again, one of his brothers. You see it. It it acts as parentheses in this entire uh, set of verses, or at least in this first verse. His people, his people. Then later, 
in verse 13, he says to the Hebrew in the wrong, why do you strike your companion or your fellow or your friend? And we saw in Acts the way that the writer of Acts picks it up and says brother. That's the the overall intention there. Why do you strike your brother? So, who are the Hebrews to Moses? Answer, they are his brothers and his companions. Well, that then leaves another question. What about the Egyptians? If Moses sees the Hebrews as his brothers, as his companions, his fellows, his friends, then how does Moses see the Egyptians? Well, that answer is clear from verses 11 to 12. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, it is typical, very typical, to see this story in isolation and to focus so much attention on Moses' sins and failures. I've seen this so many times. Where people will take this this little act here in this verse and pluck it right out of its context and hold it up to make the point, look, Moses was a sinner too. Look, Moses was a failure too. And yes, of course, we know that. But there is a tendency to get fixated on the ethics of Moses' act of killing the Egyptian and to lose the thrust of the passage To forget, what is this passage even about? Why is it here? Where is this act of killing on the part of Moses situated in the overall story? Of course, we recognize problems with Moses' act. It was premeditated. He looked this way and that. He took a little time. It was premeditated. It was an over reaction. Killing for beating. You remember that with Cain's son Lamech. He, I've killed a young man for, for striking me. It is an overreaction. It does not seem to fit what was being done. Killing for beating. It was hidden after the fact. And so Moses tries to cover up what has happened. All of these things are true and yet The word is the same in verses 11 to 12, striking or assaulting. What the the Egyptian is doing to the Hebrew slave is the same verb as what Moses does to the Egyptian who is beating him. So we simply don't know how badly the Hebrew was being beaten. Perhaps the Hebrew was on the brink of death. We know that the Egyptians care nothing for the lives of the Hebrews. Maybe this man is being beaten nearly to death. Moses is looking around to the left and to the right. Would have been natural for Egyptian royalty about to defend a Hebrew against a royally sanctioned taskmaster. So it's more than just I'm going to kill this man. Is anyone looking? It's also the fact that to do anything in that moment, for Moses to do anything, to respond in any way that is un-Egyptian, 
would have been potentially threatening to Moses himself. And so, of course, as he is about to intervene, he looks this way and that. The truth is, we're just not told very much at all about the circumstances of this act of killing. Very little detail is is given. But once again, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 tells us what is in Moses' heart. So we always want to ask this question, not that the act itself is irrelevant, but we always, as those who are Christians, as those who look to Christ, who's told us about our hearts, that all sin comes from the heart, we have to ask the question, what is in Moses' heart? And Acts chapter 7, verse 25, gives us the answer. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses sees himself as giving deliverance, as giving rescue on behalf of the Lord. But he says here... Stephen, that they did not understand. So how do we know they didn't understand? Well, the Hebrew, whom he rescues, spreads around the news that he killed the Egyptian. Can you imagine that? You're Moses. This man's being beaten, maybe to death. Moses steps in, rescues the man, at the very least from another lick. And what does the man do? He goes around and starts telling people about it. Hey, Hey, Moses, that guy, he killed one of the Egyptians. And so it just spreads and spreads and spreads. And the Hebrew, whom he confronts on the following day, throws it back in his face. Verse 14, when Moses corrected him, he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? The irony, by the way, is God will. Moses will be the prince and the judge over the people. But he says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So the people did not understand. The people did not see things the way Moses saw them. And you know, it's interesting to consider what's in the mind of the Hebrews. Uh, maybe they're envious of Moses. Maybe they just think, you know, you, you're one of us and you've been up there in the palaces. You've been enjoying all of the glories of Egypt and we're down here in the pit. Being, our children are being killed. We're being beaten and we're serving the Egyptians. We're serving you, Moses. You're one of them. So they don't understand. So let's just take a moment and zoom out and ask the question, what is the overarching purpose of these verses? And how should they impact us? And it's wonderful when you come to a passage in the Old Testament that gets a lot of attention in the New Testament because that really takes all of the mystery away as we come to the passage to understand what is it that we need to take away from this as the people of God. And we find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. This is the writer of Hebrews reflecting on what is going on in these verses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now let me just ask you this question. In light of Acts 7 and in light of Hebrews 11, can we take a passage like this, strip it of all of its meat, and just hold it up and talk about how evil Moses was to kill that Egyptian? No. That's not what's going on here. The ethics of it, we can discuss. But that's what this text is about. The heart of Moses. So the short answer is, Moses is here clearly identifying with his people. He doesn't want the glory of Egypt. Moses wants the glory of God. He chooses to be in the pit with God's people over being in the palace with the Egyptians. Moses' life is a life of faith, seeing the unseen, hoping in a greater reward, looking beyond earth's fleeting pleasures and fading treasures to God's promises. And I think this gives us some insight into what faith is. You know, we live in a culture, a Christian culture, where basically you, you pray a prayer and you profess that you're a believer. And then sociologists and pollsters, they do all of these polls, and they find out that so-called evangelical Christians don't even believe in the gospel. That so-called church-going evangelical Christians don't even believe in the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, or the exclusivity of the gospel, or the fact that a person needs to be born again, or the inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture. That there just isn't real faith among so many claiming to be Christians. So many happy to wear that label, but who have none of the faith that the Bible holds up as biblical gospel faith. And so what is faith? What does it look like to have faith? And I would submit to you that what we just read in Hebrews chapter 11 about the heart of Moses and his rejection, even at his level, he had all the pleasures of Egypt in front of him. He had everything that he could have wanted to please his body. And he turned his back, we are told, in Hebrews 11, on all of those pleasures and all of those treasures to follow this God, to identify with this God's people. As the writer will say, even to take hold of Christ himself in the promises of God as a greater reward than all the rewards of Egypt. That's a picture. What is the great reward for you? Where are your pleasures? Where are your treasures? Are they in this world? Are they here in Egypt? Or are they in heaven? Are they in the city of the living God? Are they in the heavenly Jerusalem? You'll know by how you spend your time. You'll know by whether or not you talk to God. You'll know in how you raise your children and what you talk to them about. You'll know in how you treat your enemies, how you love your neighbor. Real faith has let go of the world and taken hold of Christ. That's biblical faith. Anything else is a mirage. It's a phony. It's a deception. And all those who lack this faith will die in their sins 
and spend eternity in hell, separated from the living, wise, and good God. So that's what verses 11 to 14 are about. Whatever we are to make of this act of Moses, identifying with his people. Secondly, we come to fleeing for his life. And so for that, we'll go to verses 15 to 22 in a moment. But first, just by way of summary, so far we've seen a few things about Moses. His identity is with his people. His heart is filled with compassion for the oppressed. His mind is trusting in the promises of God. Isn't that interesting? I mean, already we're not given very much. By the way, we're told later that Moses is the most meek and humble man on the planet. And you even see that here. It takes later biblical writers to tell you what's going on in Moses' heart. Because Moses is not about tooting his own horn. Moses is not interested in putting himself up high on the pedestal. But as we read through just this short description... You can't help to see what God has done in preparing Moses for his calling, for his role, his compassion, his trust in God. But Moses' desire to be a deliverer appears to be in his own strength. That's really the biggest problem. If you want to try to make sense of, you know, this killing of the Egyptian... What's going on here? Moses' desire to be a deliverer appears to be in his own strength and according to his own initiative. Moses is here acting on his own. He sees injustice. He sees oppression. As Acts tells us, in his heart, he sees himself as a deliverer of God's people. Perhaps there are things that have happened in his life that have led him to believe that he is uniquely positioned to do something about the Hebrews, and all that they are suffering. But he does it in his own way. We are meant to contrast the outcome of this deliverance with what comes later. The deliverance that is God's calling. What is the result of this deliverance, this little d deliverance? Well, Moses ends up fleeing for his life. That's what happens when Moses takes it into his own hands. That's what happens when Moses tries to do it in his own strength is he's left fleeing for his life. So look with me at verses 15 to 22 now. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So now, Moses is on the run. The news of his killing the Egyptian 
has made its way from the slaves all the way up to the Pharaoh himself. And who knows how this happened, but I think we can understand the way news travels. The rumors begin to spread. Maybe a taskmaster overhears two of the Hebrews discussing in a whispery voice what had happened. Or maybe they're just talking loudly. They don't care. Maybe they don't even really like Moses, the Hebrews. And then it gets reported back to the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh will not have it. At this point, any relationship that Moses has to the royal court, any relationship that Moses has, even to his own daughter, is null and void. Moses has become an outlaw. He has become a rebel. He has shown his true colors. And now he must be killed. He should have been thrown into the Nile. He must be killed, says Pharaoh. He seeks Moses' life. And the narrative moves quickly at this point and puts Moses at a well in Midian. This is quite a ways away probably to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, there is debate, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the, uh, the Red Sea crossing and where Mount Sinai is and that sort of thing. But I'm convinced by those who see this being east of the Gulf of Aqaba in the Arabian Peninsula. And when he arrives there, he sees seven ladies They are shepherdesses. They are shepherding women. They're taking care of their father's flock, seven of them to support each other. But then they run into a group of bullies. That's what we find at the well. You know, there's there's these seven daughters and they're out there and they're trying to, to take care of their father's flock. And even though there's seven of them, this group of shepherds bully these women, take advantage of their weakness, pushing them aside, driving them off so that they can get what they need first or they can get more of what they need. Bullying these ladies. Well, what happens? Once again, we see the heart of Moses. Isn't it interesting? The stepping stones of this story really are Moses caring for the oppressed Moses defending or delivering, coming to the aid of the oppressed. There's the man first being beaten. And then there's the the, the mutual oppression of two Hebrews fighting, but also the wicked one who is harming his fellow, his companion. Moses can't not step in. He can't not defend the oppressed. He can't not stand up for what is right. God has given this man the heart of a deliverer. And it's there from the very beginning. All the courage and compassion that comes with that role as the deliverer has been has been firmly placed in Moses's soul. And this just tells us God equips us, right? God equips us for what we are to do. God calls us to things in life. And what's interesting is when you get to the the burning bush, what does Moses say to God? When God wants to send him, Moses is like, no, 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 I just can't do it. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I, I'm not capable enough. I send someone else. God, I can't speak well. God has given Moses everything that he needs in his character and in his training, as we read in Acts, in his Egyptian training, in word and deed. God has given Moses everything he needs. And now God is going to fill him with power 
and bless all the work that he will do. But Moses still feels incapable. And I think that's the case with us too. God calls us to all sorts of things and we begin to look at ourselves. And when we are called to something, some work for God, and we are fixated on all of our weaknesses and inabilities, the problem is not that we're just too humble. The problem is we're too prideful because we should never be thinking in those terms in the first place. It is God who does the work through us. It is God in whom we must trust. So here we are. Once again, Moses, the rescuer, the deliverer, verse 17 says that Moses saved them, which points forward to his future work in saving God's people. So what happens? The ladies go back to their father, who is a Midianite priest named Reuel, or also Jethro. He has, he's, mentioned, he's given these two names, and they tell him what had happened. So who are the Midianites? What's, what's going on here? Well, you might remember in Genesis 25, after Sarah's death, Abraham took another wife to himself named Keturah. And through Keturah, he had these various sons, and one of them was Midian. And the Midianites, of course, were sent off to the east as to not get in the way of Isaac and his inheritance. We don't know much about their religion at this point. We know that Reuel is somehow a priest of the Midianites, probably some of the faith that was in Abraham's heart, some of the teaching about God has, has made its way down through the centuries to these Midianites, to this Midianite priest, Reuel. But we just don't know. Probably some mixture of religions present there. Maybe he's like Melchizedek. We get this random person appearing on the scene in Genesis 14. Now we're told later in Hebrews he's a type of Christ. But, but he's, a, he's a priest of God. He's just this, this guy out there. We, we're not giving any background about him. He's this priest of God out there outside of what God is doing through Abraham. So maybe here we have something similar like Melchizedek. But either way, Reuel sends for Moses and brings him into his house, giving him his daughter in marriage. We read this in verses 21 to 22 as we finish up this morning. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is fleeing has ended in settling. Once again, with the naming of his son, we get insight into what is going on in Moses' heart. He is away from everyone and everything he knows. And so he names his son in accordance with his circumstances. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Can you imagine? Moses is rejected by both sides. You might think, man, it's great. He gets, gets to pick and choose who he wants to be with. Does he want to be with the Egyptians? Does he want to be with the Hebrews? Everybody likes Moses. No. This is a moment of utter isolation. His people, the people whom he has identified with, the people whom he thought of himself as a deliverer of, the people of God, the God in whom he trusts, the God whom he knows in some way at this point, he has become a sojourner away from these people. And the Egyptians, his mother, his mother and the Egyptians around his mother who had helped to raise him 
friends he had made in Egypt. All of these people, part of Moses' past. And it will be that way for 40 years. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Last week, we looked at faith while suffering. Now we see the need for faith while sojourning. Moses is a pilgrim. He's a pilgrim in a foreign land. God has brought him away from Egypt, and now he must wait here in a foreign land. You know, one of the great words for us in the New Testament to mark the, what it means to live as a Christian is this word waiting. This word waiting. Well, there are probably few things that we hate to do more from the time we are little. Very little. We hate waiting. But the Bible puts before us a Christian life in which we are on a pilgrimage waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. We are waiting for our eternal home. We're waiting for that place that he went away to prepare for us. We are waiting for the eternal bliss and the return to paradise. We are waiting as sojourners with various kinds of suffering. That is what it looks like to be a Christian. We're not saved unto comfort. We are not saved unto worldly prosperity. We are not saved unto all the T's being crossed and all the I's being dotted. We are saved unto a life of cross-bearing and enduring afflictions and suffering and trials which for us are refining our faith and working as tests and testimonies to those around us. That's what, that's what we're called to. So maybe you came here this morning thinking something otherwise about Christianity. And if you listen to some preachers on TV or online, you would think that's what Christianity is all about. But it's not. We are sojourners in this world we are pilgrims, and we face many trials. As we finish this morning, I want to point something out for you. Why is Moses in Midian? Why did God do it this way? And by the way, we know who's behind all of this. Just as Joseph's brothers put Joseph into the pit and sell him into slavery— underneath the sovereign hand of God. We know that all that has happened with Moses is likewise underneath the sovereign hand of God. Why has God done it this way? Well, the mystery of that will never be able to mine to the depths, but God is removing, I think we can say, every vestige of his Egyptian identity. God has, has raised Moses up within Egypt He's given him all the tools that he's needed. He saved him. He rescued him as a baby through the Egyptian princess. And now it is as though all that, the, the chaff of being an Egyptian, all that extra chaff, God is stripping away off of Moses as he is sojourning in a foreign land. Remember when he shows up at the well? How was he recognized by the Shepherd ladies, as an Egyptian. They went back to their father, Reuel, and they said, an Egyptian rescued us. Moses looks the part. He speaks like an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. And for 40 years, God will strip away any remaining vestige of that Egyptian identity. When God comes to him 40 years later, 
in the burning bush, he will be ready to stand up to the power of Pharaoh in the name and power of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your saving power. Lord, to consider the the grandeur of the Exodus, this event that reverberates throughout all of Scripture, this event that defined your people historically. Lord, to think that all of it was a picture, that all of it was a pointer to something even greater, that all of it was a pointer beyond itself to the very real, very powerful exodus that each one of us in this room as a Christian has experienced in our lives. Father, you have brought us out of slavery to sin, death, and hell, and you have brought us into the freedom where there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, we praise you that you raised up Moses to deliver your people and you preserved the line of Christ and you established your law among your people which would be fulfilled in Christ. You made a people that bore your own name. But God, we praise you even more that Jesus is the true deliverer. We praise you that through him we have been rescued. And Father, we pray that we would take hold of Christ this week in new ways, with new perception, with new vigor, with fresh zeal for him and his gospel. Father, we pray for any among us this morning who are not true Christians. Lord, anyone in this room right now who is not truly saved, who is not truly born again, who has not let go of the pleasures and treasures of this world to take hold of Christ, the treasure in the field, who when found, the person goes away, sells everything he has, and buys that very field. Father, would you be merciful to that person? Would you be merciful to those people here this morning who are undone before your face, who are in their sins, for whom the fear of death has not been removed, for whom sin, the guilt and power of it remains. Father, would you be merciful and would what they have heard this morning from your word be used by your spirit to bring conviction of sin, a realization that Christ is far more precious And far more beautiful than any allurement that this world has to offer. And that they would would repent. They would turn from loving the world to loving you through Christ. We pray that you be merciful, Lord, to us all. We thank you for the Lord's Supper this time to celebrate the new covenant in Christ's blood. Father, would you grow us as we experience this together as your people. In Christ's name, amen.